This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Dawn Hancock about what it means to be a socially conscious designer and how she thrives off giving to others. I'm not unique. Oh, God, Dawn. (laughs) You you might want to work on that. (laughs) It's the truth. I really believe, like, if you have the passion and you have the drive and you really believe in doing this sort of stuff, you can do it, too. Here's Debbie Millman. Don Hancock is the managing director of the Chicago design firm Firebelly, which he founded in 1999. Don is known for linking social consciousness with design in almost everything she does. In 2006, Don founded the Firebelly Foundation. It's an umbrella organization for her community-based projects, which include an informative platform for giving to the needy, as well as programs that train and provide resources for a new generation of socially responsible designers. Earlier in 2013 came the launch of one of Firebelly's biggest projects to date, the Chicago Bike Share Program, Divi, which Don helped name. Don Hancock, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. You describe yourself as a social entrepreneur whose favorite color is secretly pink. You That's gotten me in trouble. I'm, I'm just going to tell you that. It's not actually just pink as an overall color. It's magenta specifically. And you consider pink and magenta to be the same color? Why not just say it's secretly magenta? <laughs> I don't know. I should change that on Twitter. But you don't seem like a pinky, magenta-y kind of a lady. That's that's pretty true. I would agree with that, actually, <laughs> which is, I think, why I like magenta more so than mauve, let's say. Magenta is much more powerful, I think, and that's, I think, why I secretly love it. So I read that when you were three years old, you were called a red tornado. Yeah, that's um, that was my cousin's name for me because... Uh, I had red hair and still do, although there's lots of hair dye in it now. But I was one of those kids that just, I just ran around and did whatever I wanted. I was an only child as well. So I was kind of a, a lot to handle, I think. And so my cousins, they got to babysit me. So they were the fortunate ones to have to uh, deal with me. That's how I got my name was just from the craziness that I caused, apparently. So nothing much has changed. Exactly, I guess. <laughs> yes, correct. So you were teased a lot, I understand, and you had to stick up for yourself all the time. Was it because you had red hair or was it because you were a tornado? Um, you know, a little column A, a little column B, and probably more so just the fact that I was so much younger than them. And so they liked to really, you know, give it to me um, as much as they could, to, you know, to the extent of playing airplane and dislocating my shoulder. You know, those sorts of fun things. Your cousins dislocated your shoulder? (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So you have to have a thick skin as well as some repaired bones. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So I understand that you had a a pretty rough childhood. Your mom died of lung cancer when you were 10. Mm -hmm. And then you spent a lot of time taking care of your dad who had rheumatoid arthritis. You cared for your house. You did all the shopping. You even did a lot of illegal driving, from what I understand. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I guess technically it was illegal. I was 15, but, you know, close enough. And I understand that for quite some time you really were trying to understand why you, why did this kind of stuff happen to you? What did you learn in that process? 
It took me, I mean, I'm still learning, right? It's not like that's something that you've one day figure out and everything's changed. Um, my dad was so much older with definitely a debilitating disease, rheumatoid arthritis, as it progresses over time, gets worse and worse to the point where you can't walk and you can't do things. He couldn't move his knees very well or his hands and all sorts of things. And so you get to a point, you know, and I'm a teenager and I'm taking care of him pretty much on my own and having to deal with that and and the loss of my mom at such a young age, it definitely puts you in an interesting place. And I struggled and still do with that. And in high school, had many scenarios where I didn't know if I was going to make it to the next day. There were some tough moments for sure. How did you cope? What did you do? I definitely relied on my friends for moral support and just making sure they were sort of family to me. And I think it's really interesting because it's very similar to how I think I've built my studio. You know, it's not just a design company. It's a family. Even if it's a scenario where, um, like in high school, for example, I, f- I feel like I'm going to get into a, like a really dark topic, but uh, we'll, whatever. We'll, 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 pick <laughs> it, we'll, we'll pick it up out of the darkness soon. <laughs> we'll go there. Um, four of us who were very good friends, we had this weird little like, we're not going to kill ourselves. It was like the suicide pact and... We had each other, and so that was what we relied on to sort of get us through to the next day. And, you know, eventually you realize that there's other things going on, and you go to college, which was, you know, completely life-changing for sure. Where did you go to college, Don? I went to Northern Illinois University, DeKalb, Illinois. And when did you decide that you wanted to be a designer? I was in a kind of interesting spot in terms of, like, high school I couldn't draw very well, or I didn't think I could anyway. I still don't think I can. But the one thing I could lean on in terms of art was photography. I was pretty good at that, and I could see that. And one of my teachers in high school said, maybe you should try to do something in graphic arts. And I went to take a class that was at a different high school that was a graphic arts class. And so essentially what I learned was how to print. I learned how to be on the opposite side of what I do now. I learned how to do screen printing and I learned how to do offset printing and wow, um, yeah, some really Great cool skills stuff. to know. How different it is to know how to do those things and then actually be able to design for them. I like you know, completely different. So I still didn't know that that wasn't graphic design at that point. You know, I still thought that was maybe what I wanted to do. And then I ended up going to Northern, having very little guidance. I just decided, well, I'm going to go to Northern because that's where all my friends are going. That's why I went to SUNY Albany. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, yeah, my friends are going there. Okay, I'll go there too. Totally lucked out that it actually happened to be a really good design school. I had a really amazing professor who I'll give a shout out to because I would love to talk to her. Uh, And I have no idea where she is anymore, but her name's Susan Lally. She changed everything. She was like, stay in this typography class. You know what you're doing. You're good at this. And like, just take the next one. And then I did. And by the time I was a senior, I think I actually finally figured out, oh, this is what design is. It doesn't surprise me that after being encouraged or saved by a teacher that you would then not want to do that yourself, knowing you the way I do. Um, Your dad passed away when you were in your 20s, and I understand that that was, as can well be expected, given your earlier childhood experiences, really life-changing in that you were very much alone. At that point, I understand that you had a fairly cushy job, although I could not find what it was. All I could find about your first job was that it was cushy, not where it was, not what you did. It was cushy, but you weren't doing what you loved. What was it? It was actually 
technically my second job. My first job I was fired from, which I love that. Oh, it's tell us that story. I always love the fired stories. Um, I, I don't want to talk bad about somebody, but... Just don't tell us who it was with. <laughs> Just tell us the awful things they did. Well, it wasn't even that they were awful things. They actually were very nice people, but they just were not good designers. I got sort of the bait and switch. They showed me this portfolio of work when I went to interview with them that after I got hired, I realized was a former partner's work who had left like a year or something before that. So I spent a year essentially frustrated by the work. And it was a nice environment, but it was very small. It was a husband and wife and one other person and me. And so you're kind of locked into a lot when you're just that tiny of a place. Anyway, I was looking for another job. This was back before you all had Gmail and a million other things going on online. And we had one email account for the entire office. And I had, can I, can I give a, <laughs> I'm going to talk about AIGA Minneapolis. So I, I, sent a, I sent my resume and my stuff to their chapter. For some reason, they had an online kind of setup that said, you know, send us your stuff and we'll connect you with the right people. Because this was, you know, long enough ago that there weren't lots of ways to do that sort of stuff. So I said, just don't email me back here. You know, here's my oh. stuff. Don't email me back here. And they did. Of and course so they did. <laughs> my boss found out, and the next day I was fired. Oh, okay. Whatever. So, but then you went on to the cushy job. I was went that on to in the cushy job. No, that was actually in Chicago, too. I ended up at a place called Metamore Technologies, which doesn't exist anymore, which is maybe why you can't find them. It was a, you know, the height of the dot com world from a tech standpoint. It was 97, 98. Basically, it was 500 developers and then a team of like four designers. And that's not really ideal. No. <laughs> well, yeah. So um, I was doing really amazing scaled projects in terms of the client work, but I was never really excited about what I was doing. So I would go home and I would spend time volunteering and working with friends of mine who were connected with nonprofits and I'd help them. And I could see that was really making a difference. So three years after you graduate, you're 25 years old, you decide to start your own business with no money, no clients, and what you referred to as no clue. Yep. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my dad died in November of 98, and it was, I think, at the funeral when my first partner in my business came up to me and said, you know... I love you and I want to see good things happen. And so if you ever want to do anything together, let me know. And I was like, hmm. And this is somebody who I've been friends with since middle school. And I trusted him and he was very, you know, good guy. And so one thing led to another and we realized, hey, why don't we start a company together? So between November and March, essentially, was the planning of figuring out how to do this thing, which really meant get a website up and some business cards made. And actually, probably more importantly, get my company to pay for the AIGA conference I wanted to go to before I left. <laughs> that's, that's actually why it took me until March, because I really wanted to go to the first design ranch that they did in Austin, which was awesome. Yes, um, that is awesome, actually. I've been to Design Ranch. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So you talk about starting a business the way that you thought a business should be run, as opposed to the sort of classic business model with projections and forecasts and so forth. You just said, screw it, and invented your own model. Can you talk a little bit about what your own model was? Well, I mean, the reality was I didn't even know what a business should be. I just want to work for people that 
are doing good things and who respect me and who I respect and who I probably want to be friends with. That was a huge component of it. And then from a traditional, more business mind, I didn't know anything. So I didn't really know what I didn't know. I suppose I should have written a business plan, but what do you do? What do you write a business plan for? I have no idea. I didn't have a client or any money or anything. I just sort of figured someone will call. And if they don't, then, you know, I'll go get another job. So you refer to yourself now as a social entrepreneur. What does that mean exactly? I think for me, it means that every day I'm trying to do something that impacts the world in a positive way. The reason I sort of lean on the entrepreneur thing is because I've started so many you know, other programs and things. There's not just Firebell anymore. There's Reason to Give and our camp and our university. And so those things, generally speaking, I'm not running those programs from top to bottom. I can't do all of these things. So when I think about entrepreneurs, I think that's kind of what they do. They come up with ideas and then they sort of roll them out and find an amazing team to make it happen. And while I'm involved in all of those things, I'm not the go-to. When you started your business, did you intend to do the design for good type work that you do then? Or was it something that has evolved over time? When I first started, it definitely was a model that it didn't exist, right? So it wasn't like there was something out there where I said, I want to do something like so-and-so is doing. What really got me inspired was the nonprofit work. And over the course of the first couple of years, I realized we actually had a record label when we first started. That's a very different world from one side of the, the nonprofit side to the artist side. And while they're both equally inspiring and fun to work on, there was a clear difference between the two for me. You know, it's fun to design album covers now and again. It wasn't what I wanted to do forever. I wanted to do this other stuff that I felt like was making an impact. So this wasn't a plan. It just was what evolved. I listened to your TEDx talk, and in that talk you say when you started your business, you would never, ever imagine that this was the kind of work you'd be doing. Um, Why didn't you imagine that this was the kind of work you'd be doing? I don't think I knew that it was possible. I still see that people question me all the time. And now it's 15 years in and they're like, how are you doing this? I don't understand. Do you eat ramen every day? Well, people don't think that you could make money (laughs) with this kind of business profile. But you do. Yeah, we do fairly well. It's not about the money. And I think that's why maybe it's been successful. I don't look at it from a financial standpoint as like, that's what I'm focused on. I'm making sure that there's enough money to buy the next thing or take the next vacation or, you know, all those things happen, but that's not what I'm focused on. I read that shortly after your, your, both your parents died, that you decided to become a vegetarian and to change your consumer decisions, such as chasing one detergent over another. (laughs) First of all, it would be very hard for me to imagine you chasing one detergent over another, but what made you decide to make those specific decisions? I think the biggest part of it is that I realized, like, Every little thing matters. And where my money goes makes a difference. And maybe it seems insignificant from the standpoint of it's just one person. What can you do? But the more of us that do these things, the ripple effect happens and things change. Firebelly is a great example. Designed for good, this concept of this stuff, nobody talked about this 15 years ago. Now that's all we all talk about. I've seen that change, and that's the same with the green and sustainability movement, that happened the same way. And I I very much believe that every dollar I spend or, you know, to the degree that I can can do it, of course, I'm not perfect. I buy plenty of things that would probably not be 
great for uh, the environment or for whatever. But I, at the same time, like, I'm pretty conscious about my choices. In 2007, you spoke at a sustainability conference in Qatar. And that really changed your life. When you got back to the United States, you actually went into a depression. Um, you were even thinking about closing your business because you felt that something fundamental was missing. What happened? How, how did you recover? That conference was amazing. It was an opportunity that felt like one of those scenarios where you think, like, pinch me. And, and is this real? You've brought me across the world to speak with these people who I've idolized for my entire careers. It was a sustainability conference that was across all design disciplines. And so because of that, there were people doing work from fashion and architecture to product design. And it was amazing to see and hear what people were up to. And I felt like a kid in this space. But then I also felt like, what are we really doing? We just make logos and websites. What does that do? Like, does that really matter? I mean, yeah, we're helping nonprofits, and that's awesome. And believe me, I don't take that for granted for a second. But at the same time, I wasn't exactly sure if it was really making an impact. And so it took me about three months to finally figure out the problem wasn't so much that we weren't making an impact with our clients. We were. We were doing really good stuff. The trouble for me was there wasn't a direct one-on-one, -on -one, and so there was somebody in the middle, and that was the client. And so we got rid of the client, and that's when Reason to Give started. And that was the program that kind of launched the nonprofit arm of our company, and then it also helped really give us that one-to-one -one connection with our community. Now, how much are you actually designing now? I read that you consider that you don't think you're a really awesome designer and don't think that you ever really were. So I, I want to get a sense of how important design is to your business now and how important you being a designer is. Oh, I think it's the only thing. Believe me, like, while I realize there are people a thousand times better than me at, at this, I'm still a designer at heart. And I, you know, what everybody, us designers, we look at things and we're super critical of, is this, you know, look at the letting here and the kerning there and this and that. And like, you know, I pay attention to all of that stuff, but I don't have the time to work on it as a craft, like the people who work for me, because they spend, obviously, their nine to five, but then they spend their off hours and they're just constantly sketching and coming up with all kinds of crazy ideas. And I wish I could do that. But as soon as I started realizing that the interns who were coming in were killing me, like, <laughs> you know, game over. So it was smart of me to take a step back and do the things that I think I was really good at, which is much more of the client management, new business stuff. So three months after you come back from Qatar, you start Reason to Give. And that is a program that you founded, which impacts the lives of Humboldt Park residents. It allows shoppers to purchase online or donate money online towards goods that children and families need. You also have the participants of the program attend monthly educational workshops taught by professionals. So you're not just giving, you're teaching, which then allows people to live out certain values and gives them certain opportunities that they might not have otherwise had. Tell us how you even began to do this. <laughs> I think because we had been working with so many nonprofits, you see how they're done and you see how they're run. And, and I figured, well, 
I really want to help the people in the community. It's where our studio at that point had been for, I think, seven years. And so how can we make a difference in these people's lives using these things that we've learned from our clients as well as design thinking that we do every day? Back then, the idea of sort of crowdfunding and all that wasn't really a popular concept. The only site that I knew of was Donors Choose. That was essentially a way to crowdfund to help teachers with different projects and needs that they had. And it was clear that it was a success. And so I thought, well, I mean, that's kind of a great model, and I love what they're doing. And so how can I help do that for the community? And so why not create something? I was also really inspired by um, Extreme Home Makeover, the stories you hear on there, and you get to sort of really get to know a family and their needs and their struggles. And so for me, Reason to Give is kind of this, like, merger of all of these worlds that I was sort of living at that point in time. And I really wanted to use video as a way to help share stories because it's great to write a story up or show some photos. But somebody being able to tell their story through a video is really impactful for the person on the other end who might be donating. And so that's kind of how that started. The educational component wasn't something we did from the beginning. That's come through over the last, I think, three years we've been doing that now. Because you're teaching people computer skills, financial planning, healthy eating, eating on a budget, active parenting. And not only that, but you also have large corporations that are donating time and all sorts of goods. You're getting things from Home Depot and you're getting things from all kinds of stores that help people recreate a life for themselves. It's kind of awesome. So you go out and solicit all of the donations and you find the people and you take the videos and you... But me personally, but yes. <laughs> well, you and you and your army of do-gooders, exactly. as you call them. Yes. So give us one example of a, of a profound change that you've helped inspire. Well, um, there's a family who came to us who... They came through one of the churches that we're connected to and they said... You know, we really could use some help with our screen door in the back. It's kind of needs some fixing. We'd love to get some help on some computer stuff. You know, they didn't really know what to even ask for. And so our program is a, a year-long program. And so when we interview people, they come in, families of four to six people are living under literally like $6,000 a year. It's shocking to me how people can live this way. And, you know, family of four or six living in that way. So when we went to interview the Singletons, Shannon, who is the director for Reason to Give, she came back and she said, they asked for this, but we need to do so much more for them. You need to come and see what's going on here. And so we did kind of a before video of their home. And basically it was infested with roaches, rats. It was a complete and total disaster in terms of livability. They had no furniture. They were sleeping on the floor. They had two kids that were sleeping in these conditions. And it was the only family that we'd had in our program so far and still to date that actually owned their own home. And so it was a situation where she saw this need of like a screen door and she was like, you need so much more. You can't even comprehend like it's great that you're asking for these little things, but we need to help you big, you know, with much more. And so Like I just said, I was inspired by Extreme Home Makeover, but I never actually thought I would get the opportunity to do one. We said, you know, we do a special project every year. Usually they're with an organization or a school within the community. But this year we thought, let's try and help them and let's try to really, like, make a difference for their home. And so we um, decided to do an Extreme Home Makeover of their house. 
And then we spent a good um, seven days. We thought it was going to be two, but, you know, that's what they show you on TV. Um, And it wasn't anywhere close to two. It was a good seven days of redoing this home. And it wasn't just redoing this home. It was redoing their whole life. It was the coolest thing I think I've ever been part of. I think the day or two days before we were about to do it, we had probably 30 or so people who were going to volunteer and help us. Shannon had gone to Home Depot to just sort of say, hey, maybe you can help get us some paint. She was talking to the manager. The manager said, this sounds like something we might want to get involved with. And one thing led to another. And within two days, they had 45 true people who knew what the hell they were actually doing come and completely redo this home with us and paid for all of the materials. I mean, it was the most amazing thing that I've ever experienced just from a giving standpoint. These people came and they redid all their floors, ceilings that were completely rotted out, all new electricity and plumbing. And this was in seven days, which is still like an intense amount of time to try to do something like this. So it was it was an amazing experience. And since then, that was uh, last spring, since that happened, I've seen that family change dramatically. The son went away to college, which he didn't ever think he was going to be able to do, but he was in military school that helped him go to a university. The wife got a job at a local nonprofit in the community, which was something that she had been struggling. It wasn't so much that she didn't have a skill set. It was just she didn't have the confidence. And suddenly somebody came in and changed her life, and she realized, like, oh, I can do this. And so it's been pretty fantastic. That's amazing, Don. And this is just scratching the surface of what you do. You also have the Grant for Good program. You have Firebelly Camp. You have Firebelly University. These are all part of your Firebelly Foundation. So this is these are three additional programs that you have to give back to the community in addition to your ongoing everyday reason to give program. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the community. You were born in Chicago. You went to college in Chicago. You're living in Chicago now. You, as far as I can tell, have no plan to ever leave Chicago (laughs) um, other than an occasional visit to Minnesota or New York. (laughs) Um, What is it about Chicago, Illinois, that has your heart so firmly planted in it? Well, I think I'm I'm very much a Midwesterner just in the sense that, you know, put my head down and do work and get it done. I don't feel like I should be the one getting the credit for this stuff. Technically, yeah, I may have started these programs, but, you know, I don't do this alone. Well, I don't even think you do it for the credit. So <laughs> I certainly I mean, don't do it for the credit. <laughs> no. I love um, one of the quotes in one of the speeches that I saw that you gave. I think it was in the AIGA speech. You quoted Tom Brokaw, who says, it's easy to make a buck. It's a lot harder to make a difference. It's the truth. Um, although you do make it look easy. Let's talk a little bit about Grant for Good. Grant for Good. It is a program that you started to help an organization with a year's worth, a year's worth of full-scale marketing design and business planning services to a deserving nonprofit organization. And you do this, this year-long program, full-scale, for free. Mm-hmm. You've been doing this since 2004, I understand. Mm-hmm. So talk about the grant for good. I know you've done some amazing projects. The truth is it actually started as a way for me to be able to say no to all the 
people who are requesting a brochure here or a website there or a poster or whatever. I, how, I got, how? How was it saying no? <laughs> <laughs> well, be, there was a point when I started the studio and I realized, like, there's 50 percent of the projects we were doing for free. That is not a sustainable business model. If I knew anything, I knew that wasn't going to work. So I, I figured, well, how can I take all this great stuff that I want to do and do it in a way that's actually really impactful? Because, well, it's not ideal for me from a financial standpoint, but it's also not really helping the nonprofits because essentially they're getting Band-Aids to help fix this event that they might have going on or a particular you know need they have for a campaign or something else that wasn't thinking holistically about who they were as an organization. And so I thought, well, how can we do that and make a difference? And what are they accustomed to? They're accustomed to grants. Um, so let's create a grant. Let's do this for an entire year because that's a good amount of time where you can really make a giant impact on an organization and get to know them. There's a part of it that is not just, you know, of course, we're going to do some really beautiful work for them, but we're also educating them. It's a process that they're learning and understanding the value of design through that process. You know, most of the people we've worked with have never worked with a professional designer before. So they don't understand the cost. They don't understand why it's important. And changing to this model really made a huge impact in that capacity. And so what is the criteria for your decision making in terms of who you choose? Well, we have a few. So it's evolved, too. I should probably add that. When we started, it was just Firebelly doing it. Then over the course of seven or so years at that point, some friends of ours were saying, well, how do you do this? I want to do something like that in my company. And they were people who were complimentary. You know, they weren't all designers. And they, well, hey, if you're asking me and so-and-so is asking me, maybe we should just all do this together. So that's actually when technically the grant for good was born was from that point on. And so there's everything from photography and video to obviously the design side of things and helping figure out who should be on their board, to how much they should pay each other. Like it's a really amazing um, – we even have an architect on the team. I mean it's pretty fantastic. That evolution has changed a little bit of the criteria because now we've got so many more people involved. We need to have slightly bigger organizations that can handle – 10 people calling them at any given time. So you've done projects for the Chicago Women's Health Center, for an organization called Faith in Place, for the Chicago Interfaith Committee on Worker Issues, for the Young Chicago Authors. Do you have a particular favorite? You know, it's funny. I think Faith in Place is actually one of my favorites because they really changed my view on religion. In what way? (laughs) How, How so? You know, I don't know. I was never... I grew up in a Catholic house, Irish Catholic, and... I'm also gay, so that's also another part of, you know, we're not always the most accepted people in the religious world. And so it's definitely put a dividing light in my life. Uh, When we decided to pick Faith in Place, what they were essentially is a group that helped bring all religions to the table to talk about sustainability issues. And so it was this great moment where I realized there are people in the world who are religious or spiritual or whatever you want to call it that are actually They like me. They like me as a person about who I am and what I do and my lifestyle and all that. And I guess, okay, I can stop my prejudice around what religion is and I can really change my viewpoints. What kind of impact do you think you made on them? They restructured their organization based on things that we helped them figure out over the course of that year. And that was really interesting to see. And on top of that, they had started with 50 congregations that they were working with. And by the time a year was over, they had 350 that wow. they were working with. I mean, it was a massive impact. Donations were up, you know, 200 percent. A lot of nonprofits, I think, 
believe that if they put money into their design or their image, people are going to think their money's going in the wrong place. Why are you putting it there? Shouldn't it be in a program? Shouldn't it be in a service you're doing? Something like that. It's this mom-and-pop mentality that is really hard to fight sometimes. And I think when you can show something like what we've done with Faith in Place, you can say, look at dramatic impact. Because suddenly donors and volunteers and everybody else realize, like, these guys are legit. I want to be part of this thing. So you also, in the last several years, started Camp Firebelly, which is an intensive 10-day immersion experience that invites talented young designers from around the world to come to your studio, and you challenge these students to address social issues through collaborative projects of their own design. So what kind of projects do they do, and why do you want these kids to spend 10 days in your studio? Actually, it's a great opportunity, I think, for the studio to give back in an educational way to young designers. They're coming out of college or they're in college. A lot of universities don't believe what we do at Firebelly or any of us in this sort of social design world. Like, they don't think this is what we should be doing. And I find it still. Why? I I don't know. It's fascinating to me because I think AIGA's finally got on board. So what's going on at the universities? But we just had an intern this past summer who's been struggling with her professors saying, like, They think this is not what you should be focused on. You should figure out how to make money through a corporate job. And, you know, I get that what we do is not the norm, but if that's what your passion is, why are you pushing them the other direction? So so we really love that opportunity to, to help young people visualize this passion that they have. And so we wanted to do, you know, kind of two things. We get a ton of internship requests, and we only really have one or two a year. So we don't have the opportunity to bring as many people in as we want. And then, of course, the grant for good, we're only helping one organization really a year. So we wanted to find another way we can help more. Your whole life is a Venn diagram. (laughs) It's fantastic. So Fiabrelli University is something that I have particular heart to because I've met some of your students and they're quite remarkable. I actually had them here last year uh, for a presentation that they made to my students about the work that they were doing in your program. And the remarkable opportunity that they've had to create a social enterprise of their dreams and start their own business under your care where they are taught how to write proposals, how to run a business, deposit the checks, do the payroll, everything. What made you decide to start this nine-month university program? I Like I said, I believe that what I do at Firebelly, anybody can do. Like, I'm not unique. Oh, if God, John. <laughs> <laughs> you, you might want to work on that. <laughs> it's the truth. I really believe. Like, if you have the passion and you have the drive and you really believe in doing this sort of stuff, you can do it too. And so, so it was really like probably my own personal, if I'm being selfish, here's where I'm being selfish. Like, I can make other people do this too. And here was my opportunity. It was a shot in the dark. And thank God there were people who were willing to be pioneers and take this massive leap and step with me and So they start out with some seed money that they sort of invest into their own business, not a tremendous amount of money, but enough to mean that they're serious. Mm -hmm. And then they work for this specific period of time with the intention of making back all of their seed money and then some. So essentially they're going to school and they're learning this from you for nothing. 
Yeah, really, they're getting paid. I right. Mean, if you think about exactly. It, <laughs> they're I mean, if they're successful, they are getting a yeah. paycheck yeah. at the end of the, I mean, they're getting paychecks regularly and they're being paid to learn this mm-hmm. on the job. Mm-hmm. How did you come up with the sort of algorithm for this? Well, I mean, the $6,000 is what their seed money, that's the cost of the program. And that's what I started. I cashed my 401k in when I started my business. That's all I had. So it was the number that just sort of resonated with me personally. One of our clients, somebody who wanted to work with Firebelly, they had a minimal amount of money. It was enough to where I thought, maybe it shouldn't be Firebelly. Maybe you guys should work with our new university program that'll be starting in two months. And if you wait... You'll have them for an entire year or, you know, nine months that you can work with them under this budget. And they'll essentially you'll have them on retainer. And they were like, well, that sounds awesome. Because from, you (laughs) know, to hire us, it would have been like two weeks of time. And it happened to be somebody who we had connected with over one of our summer camps. And so the money that that organization had was essentially what guaranteed the additional money that I had promised to the students who would be part of this. And then some. So I wasn't really terribly worried about the financial side of it because I knew we get a lot of those nonprofits or anybody, I mean, startup companies who don't really have big budgets. They want to work with us, but we've kind of evolved a little bit beyond the $500 logo, thankfully. Um, So, you know, I'm constantly funneling that stuff to other design firms or smaller independent people or whatever. And so I thought, well, if I can funnel that into a program, where it's not about the money, it's about that experience of what is it like to be working with a real client and managing them. And they ended up making a $35,000 profit, which was pretty damn good. (laughs) Pretty damn good indeed. Don, what advice would you have for people that might be listening to this podcast and want to try to give back, that want to pay it forward, that want to do good? What advice would you have for somebody that was just getting started with this type of living and being? Start small. Find something you really care about. It doesn't have to be design. It can just be go volunteer at your favorite organization or help an individual in your neighborhood or help someone in your family. I don't know. There's so many ways to give back. And I think, you know, if you're looking at stuff that I do and you you think, I could never start those things, I didn't think that either in the beginning, you know. I started small. I started with one little thing and thought, well, I'm going to help this nonprofit with this campaign. And then that campaign was so important and impactful to me that it turned into where I'm at today. And that was almost 20 years ago, really. Just don't think about this. It has to be like the rest of your life. Think about it, you know, in the moment right now. Start small. The last question I want to ask you is about the project that I referenced in your introduction. I believe it's a paid project for the Chicago Bike Share Program, uh, which you helped name. It's called Divi. So my question is, where did the name come from? Is it like divvying it up? You're (laughs) divvying up the bicycle? Yes, exactly. Yes, Bike Share. Um, What an amazing opportunity we had with that. It was a collaboration with IDEO, which for me, was even bigger deal to me than to the project itself. Like, it was cool. Believe me, I am psyched about this bike share that we have now all over Chicago. But for me, it was like, IDO wants to work with Firebelly? Are you kidding me? You get to name and design an entire system around transportation in our city. Like, super cool project. Was the name, did it come quickly? Was it, how difficult was it to come up with that? IDEO's process, they definitely led the naming process of it. But naming for them is like 
three million post-it notes on a wall. So you're coming up with biked Ditka and Cycle Jordan and like the worst <laughs> names you could think of. And then, of course, there's some really good ones that come out of there, too. But Divi was not the top of the list. In fact, it was probably the fourth or fifth name down that we all as designers really loved it. But the city and the the bike share folks, they were sort of like, I don't know, that sounds too weird for me. I'm not so sure. And they were used to Capital Bike Share in D.C. And they were used to the city bikes in New York was actually happening at the exact same time we were doing ours. So they definitely had a different perspective. Thankfully, the trademarks for so many of those other ones were not available. And so Divi was kind of a last resort. Not only was it a great name, but it was a verb. I'm going to divvy here and I'm going to – that bike share is so successful because that name is so much fun and it changes people's perception of what it is to bike ride in the city. And the logo is fantastic as well. Yeah, it was great. Dawn, another quote that you shared in your AIGA talk was one by Albert Pine. He said, what you do for yourself dies with you, but what you do for others lives on and is immortal. Don Hancock, you are immortal. You can find out more about Don Hancock and her remarkable socially conscious projects at firebellydesign.com and firebellyfoundation.org. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.